Phoenix Overlook Pop Culture. And welcome to episode 75. Um, Curtis is back with us here today. It's been a while. Um, how have you been? I just got over being sick, so. Yeah. Um, break. I'm just kind of relaxing. Started a new job two days ago. You know. What do you do now? <laughs> uh, my official title is Bitch Boy. No. I do just about everything that needs to be done for the New Mexico Bureau of Mining and Geology. And so, like, I uh, move heavy boxes, I mail out publications, I restock publications, I organize restock topographic maps, you know. So, Pretty cool stuff. So, so basically, a lot of physical stuff and everything else. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a jack of all trades job because I, I do publications and sales, I do uh, phone work, I do computer work, heavy lifting, whatever they need done. That's making coffee. <clears throat> so hopefully this is the door into something a little bit better. Actually, yeah. I don't mind this job, but yeah, I mean it's it's just a, it's a little school job, campus related job. That I'll do until I'm I'm done here in December. Well, that that's pretty cool. Um, and you, and this goes along with uh, your background. You're a lover of nature. You're you like going to parks, landmarks. Um, your extensive coursework, mm -hmm. um, and all of the related areas. And you kind of brought this to my attention and. And um, and I've kind of noticed kind of a trend of kind of just general disrespect coming across. And you know, so what you brought to my attention is not just that story in Akron, Ohio, where the guy's just taking a dump on people's cars at random, because at least that can be cleaned off easily. Um, imagine yeah. doing that in say a national park or uh, on a national landmark. And, oh, I'm sure it's been tried. <sighs> I wouldn't try it at the National Mall, though. They have good security or so, I've been told. <laughs> good God. Um, so, apparently, um, th this is something you're passionate about. And as somebody who um, went to ended their career at UCM in history, uh, this kind of puzzles me as to why people would do something like this too. But there's been a trend of national parks, landmarks, not here, just here in the U.S., around the world too, that have been kind of uh, vandalized. I mean, one could quickly interject in there, you know, ISIS demolishing the ancient city of Nimrud is in itself an act of vandalism against a landmark, a World Heritage Site. So, yeah, it's it's happening a lot by a lot of different groups or a lot of different individuals. And the unfortunate part, and 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 unfortunately with with what ISIS is doing and everything else, it's it, it's basically war. It sucks, but it's war. Um, the cases that we're going to talk about. It's 
people being careless, not really thinking things out, people who should know better, and they do it anyway. And I, I would not want to be somebody guarding these things because I, I would probably lose my job after strangling somebody. Well, um, actually, that's an important part to bring up is that a lot of the reason this is happening is because park funding is at an all-time low and there aren't people to be patrolling these areas. And so it is a lot easier for people to get out there and vandalize. Ouch. <clears throat> So one such one such incident is this happened across four states. Um, somebody going by the online persona of creepy things. Why did people come up with these names? Um, it was identified as twenty-one-year-old Casey Nockett. Um, she she appears to be cooperating with the Oregon authorities. Uh, she did this in. Four states, uh, Yosemite National Park, Death Valley National Park, Joshua Tree National Park, right in, in California, um, near your neck of the woods, Rocky Mountain National Park, and Colorado National Monument in Colorado, later Lake National Park in Oregon, Zion National Park, and Canyonlands National Park in Utah. And... Apparently, what she'd be doing, what she was doing, is doing all these things, and not not even in shock too. That's the bad part. It's yeah, acrylics, and they would put it would get posted on Instagram, and a lot of people would get upset with this, and understandably so. Um, so apparently. They're cooperating with authorities now, according to a local Oregon um, media outlet. Normally, stuff like this carries about a $5,000 fine and a year in prison, but but with national landmarks, if vandalism is extensive enough, uh, that could be a felony right there. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, you were, you're – big fan of uh, Joshua National Tree Park. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. Is Joshua it? Tree is is, um, is like that. It's it's my park, and I haven't been to it yet, and it's the one I need to go to, what I most want to go to. Um, still haven't been, but hopefully we'll get there. But um, the this doesn't. This is not the only person that's done this. Um, some guy mis named Mr. Andre mm -hmm. has been doing this as well. Yeah, so, I, he's a well-known street artist in Europe, I believe. Um, <clears throat> I had I, I don't follow street art at all, so I didn't know who the hell this guy was. Um, but uh. There was a lot of this was a really interesting story because there was um, data hidden inside of his Instagram account from his photographs that allowed them to prove he had taken the pictures inside the park. Originally, he was claiming, "Oh no, it's a rock outside the park," 
but they were actually able to map out exactly where he was in the park with GPS using his Instagram account, and then he was kind of left holding the bag because he was inside the park. And, yeah, so so it, people keep forgetting about the metadata inside of their photos. Yeah. Um, so, so they're getting themselves caught... And there's also the uh, Guara incident as well. Um, would you like to elaborate on that? So, uh, Saguaro, there's this is kind of a little bit of a long discussion with Saguaro National Park. Um, much like Oregon Pipe Cactus National Park, Saguaro is in Tucson, uh, and it's very close to the border. And being that we have problems with our border, there tends to be a lot of gang-related vandalism in those two parks. Oh. And in Saguaro, uh, it's come in the form of a lot of uh, graffiti painting of gang signs, gang symbols, what have you, on the actual cactuses themselves. Um, obviously, painting on cactuses is not the same as if you were to go outside and paint on an oak tree. The Saguaro cactus is very delicate. It is very easy to damage it. It is extremely difficult to clean. With the Saguaro incidents, <laughs> they had a young, I believe it was a, a local resident who was painting different gang graffiti on several of the older cacti in the park, and the Saguaro can live to be 50, 60, 70 years old. They grow very large, um, beautiful, beautiful uh, cacti. And... Uh, the problem was is that they had to call in a company from Europe to clean off these cacti or to try to clean off the cacti um, because this was like the only company in the world that specialized in cleaning cactus. That's how difficult it was to clean them. And I think some of them were, were damaged. I think a couple of them, the, the cacti species, uh, the individual specimens were killed as a result of trying to clean them. There wasn't anything they could do. I think most of them did get cleaned, at least to the point where the the nasty signs and symbols were not on them anymore. But you know, and the, and again, this the with this with the um, gang warfare, they're not going to care, and I think that's very very sad. Um, well, there's some, there's some contention as to whether or not this was, you know, I, I myself have a hard time believing that a gang in, say, Tucson or Phoenix is going to tell its members to go out and paint on cactuses. I think they're concerned with much more, you know, heavy stuff to them. And I have a feeling that this was a kid who wished to be in one of those gangs who maybe associated himself as in gang culture in general, just going out and doing this is, is, you know, look, I'm in the gang. I can, I can throw their gang signs. I, I'm just like they are. I'm cool. I'm hip or, or whatever it is he wanted. I, re I really have a hard time believing that this specific incident had anything at all to do with the gangs, you know, like, Oh, let's go deface some parks. I think they've got different concerns, <laughs> you know, but that's still very, very, very sad, and I hope yeah. they get caught. 
Well, I think in the case of the Saguaro incident happened in June of 2013, and I'm fairly certain that the the kid was prosecuted. I believe he was fined the max fine, which was like twenty thousand, and I believe he had a I I can't really find it at the moment, but I I think he did two years uh, in juvenile detention with like six months time served for community service or something like that. So there definitely was a punishment awarded in that case for the, the creepy things. Um, national parks across the Southwest defacement tour that this um, young lady from New York went on this past year. I'm not, I am not aware of her actually receiving any punishment for it yet. Uh, I know that there's a lot of evidence against her and that I think it's going to be very hard for her to win her case. But as far as it goes, I think she's still tied up in, in legalese at the moment and that there hasn't been a verdict in that, that case. And the bad part is this hasn't just happened in the U.S. Um, there's been other places around the world um, Recently, it's this year, a couple was caught in um, in Italy um, etching their initials onto the Roman Colosseum. Yeah, and they weren't they weren't the only ones. Um, the past November it was Russian tourists who got caught. So. <laughs> And it's happened at Easter Island in 2008 when a Finnish tourist, Marco Kolju, was caught trying to get a piece of the statues, and Mayor Edmonds Boyle called for his ear. Mm-hmm. Um, a Chinese teenager got caught in 2013 um, etching Zing Hao was here, etching that onto the walls of Egypt's uh, Luxor Temple, and then uh, Stonehenge. Um, in 2008, some people were attempting to take pieces of the temple with them, which officials apparently were okay with in the past. I, I don't know why, but not anymore. So, well, With Stonehenge, I, I have some trouble. I'm not sure where that quote came from, but I know for a fact that, that it has been illegal to take um, anything from Stonehenge since 1974. I don't know if this was from prior to that, maybe, but um, 1974 is when the um, the British Archaeology Association put the the law down on that to protect the site. Um, Washington Post was this all all these things came from Washington Post, so more than likely they meant from before that period that they yeah. were kind of a little bit lax on that. And then they're like, um, no, we better not do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, there was a big movement in the 1950s and 60s to kind of preserve sites. Um, traditionally, archaeology has had a torrid history uh, with basically um, important things being removed from sites of interest with no protection placed upon them. And so uh, you saw, you see this a lot in the American Southwest, places like Hoven Weep National Monument and Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon, where there was a lot of, where the park is, is related to the Native American history there, where a lot of pottery and jewelry was drug out of there by the cartloads in the early 1900s. 
Um, and so, so what you mentioned that lack of funding meant lack of people watching stuff. Um, yeah, meaning more people getting away with stuff. Um, I'm I'm of a different mind on a lot of things. Um, I look at public schools and realize that people keep trying to throw money at it, and I'm like, mm, this is going to take more than just money. Um, it's going to well, take people caring too. Well, what I mean by that is is that the funding in the park service is so bad, and I'll give you a really great example. Uh, Petroglyph National Monument, I believe which is up here in Albuquerque, in the middle of downtown Albuquerque, basically, on the Rio Grande River, <clears throat> um, is still closed to the public because people were etching and destroying the petroglyphs um, so much, and the Park Service couldn't afford to hire more than two people to control a park that was several, several, you know, dozen square miles in land coverage. Um Two people to patrol a park is not enough to prevent those kinds of issues from happening. Um, it is very, very difficult also to get people into the law enforcement side of, of park rangering, especially here in the southwest. I mentioned Oregon Pike Cactus National Monument earlier, which is a border park in Arizona, southern Arizona, a couple of hours south and west of Tucson. Uh, where 39 park rangers have been murdered by Mexican drug cartels who were crossing over through the park carrying their paraphernalia in the past 10 years. And I believe there are other instances in other southwest parks where rangers have been either shot at or have been wounded. I, I, I'm not aware of any other fatalities in the southwest outside of the Oregon Pipe area because that park is a literally on the border with Mexico and the U.S. But, you know, it's not combining having uh, people who don't want to do the jobs with not having enough money to hire the jobs. Obviously, having 50 park rangers wouldn't solve the problem, but it would make it a lot harder for people to get away with it. Um, as you were going to say, having people understand why you shouldn't do this is also a very important thing. And um, the thing about parks and monuments is that when these incidents happen, you do see a rally. You do see a rally from the community uh, where the community comes together by and large and, and shows a lot of outrage. And you get, so what it, what that tells me is, is that, you know, 99% of people know you shouldn't do this. You're talking about that bottom 1% of the people who don't care you know, obviously they probably know you shouldn't do it either, but they don't care. And I, I think um, you'll never be able to get rid of that 100%, but by and large, for now, there's nothing that signals to me that this is some kind of growing problem. I think it's becoming more covered here in the Southwest. Um, as we began to, you know, there, there's this there's this whole relationship between parks and monuments and the economy. And wherever you have parks and monuments, you have lots of money because you have the tourist trade. And so the people in these places, Albuquerque or in Moab, Utah, or, you know, or outside of Grand Canyon, Flagstaff, they want to protect their monuments and parks from this stuff because they want the tourists to keep coming because that 
you know, helps the local economy out and gives them a reason to have make a living there. <clears throat> so you definitely see a lot of lashback against the behavior. I think the problem is is that um, we're we're sitting at that crossroads of of how do you deal with that last vestige of people who either don't care that they're breaking the law or you know or something like that. And and that's a that's a very very good question because um, you because you also have people who are careless and you and you you shared the link with the National Parks Traveler website yeah where where it's this you know this is why this is why rangers get gray hair yeah because because people do stupid things um. Yeah, I mean it's so. Th- there's this there's this weird dichotomy. Um, there there are a couple of different kinds of people when it comes to dealing with national parks. You and both of them are under the whole the whole category of people who love those parks, who love nature, who love everything about them. But then you have these two camps. You have this one camp that is you know go away. <laughs> We don't want more people in the parks. There are too many people coming to the parks. There are so many people coming to the parks that they're damaging them just by the fact that they're there. And then you also have the other camps that's like, no, that's amazing. We want more people in the parks. That's what they're here. They're here to be used. We want more people coming in. Uh, this is, you know, This is why they were created, so it's good that they're being used. And, of course, both sides have merit and truth, and both sides have that other side of the sword, you know, where it's like, well, yeah, if you've got more people coming to the parks, that means you're going to see more instances of actual vandalism, just on principle. But there is going to be damage to the park just on general. There's a lot of people there using it, walking, treading, what have you. Um, accidents happen, people fall, deaths happen, you know. So with increased use comes increased risk, and at the, you know, at the same time. Um, and people who apparently refuse to wear spiked shoes, walking trails that are nice and icy. Right, exactly. <clears throat> people, we had last year when I visited the Grand Canyon for the first time, two days, or no, it was it one day before my friends and I got there. Um, a man had fallen off the South Rim and died because he was trying to get a hat. And, you know, it's my, like my dad always says, buy another hat. You don't need to try to crawl over the side of a canyon to get a hat. And, I mean, he fell 400 feet to his death. Oh. Very sad. Very sad um, thing to have happen. But um, these kinds of things do happen. Um, and I don't think you'll ever fully be able to put an end to these kinds of problems. But I think that if people are aware um, – if you, for example, you know, if, if you're watching this right now and if you go to parks often or monuments and you see people defacing things, just report it to the ranger station. You don't even have to call. You don't have to just, when you get to the ranger station, just say, you know, I saw somebody on this, this such and such trail and they, this is what they were wearing. This is the description of the person. And this is what they, you know, were carving into the rock or painting on the rock. And the Park Service will take care of it. In most cases, they do get convictions. So um, this is one crime area that sees a lot of punishment for what's happening. Uh, with people. And- so, 
you mentioned that there were people who, in archaeology, wanted to preserve these sites. Um, in our notes that we're looking at, you're Mitch, you know, John Muir, the father of national parks. Um, for for him, we wouldn't we wouldn't really have the idea of national parks, would we? No, um, Muir is. Muir is one of those human beings that I have to stop sometimes and go, how can the human species produce something as vile as Adolf Hitler, but then also turn around and produce some, someone as amazing as John Muir was? Uh, he was, a little background for you on him, he was a Scottish-born um, young man. His family immigrated to Wisconsin in the middle 1800s. His father was a violent very violent man. He was a, um, I believe he was a Protestant minister, and he used to beat John as a child when he would fail to recite a line from the Bible. If he recited it incorrectly, he would beat him. So that by the age of eleven, John Muir was able to actually recite about three fourths of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament by heart without reading it word for word. Um, he was an incredibly gifted and brilliant young man. He attended the University of Wisconsin. He got uh, honors degrees in geology and botany, and he went to work in a factory. <clears throat> and there was an accident. A tool flipped up and hit him in the eyes. Uh, he was working as manager. He was showing a, a new person how to, to fix a machine, and it hit him in the eyes, and he was blinded for about six weeks. He had to spend six weeks in a dark room, and he was never sure if his sight was coming back. It did come back, and when he got out of uh, the bandages and everything, he decided that he was going to leave the city and he was going to walk to the mouth of the Amazon River in South America and Brazil, build a raft and sail up its length. And he actually made it from Wisconsin to the Florida Keys where he got a fever. Uh, and I, it's pretty well established. I think it was malaria. And he decided, well, maybe I'd, I'd better you know, I'd better not go to the Amazon in this condition. So he ended up taking a boat to California, and we're lucky that he did because he got a job um, herding sheep uh, for a gentleman in the uh, valley outside of San Francisco and ended up going up into the high Sierra Nevadas and ended up finding the area that we now uh, call today the Yosemite, Yosemite National Park. And uh, he explored most of that area and became such an advocate for it that he lobbied the California state legislature to uh, set it aside as uh, preserved land. It was the first in U.S. history. Uh, eventually, he, he argued for what he originally had called a nation's park for the Yosemite. And uh, it, the idea really grew out of, out of his uh, tireless where He was an amazingly gifted writer. Um, and his ability to describe the park in detail uh, in leaflets and pamphlets <clears throat> was just incredible. But on top of that, he had all these weird insights. Um, having grown up in that very violent uh, young adulthood that he had been in, this idea of being out in nature created in him almost some kind of new form of Christianity for him one that was not rooted in violence or the, the strictness that his father had 
been such a, an advocate for, but one that was actually rooted specifically in nature. Like he, he, some of his quotes that I think kind of echo, the, as I was saying earlier, the kind of person he was, um, was uh, there was one in particular. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. Um, yeah, he, he kind of points out, he says that um, this may give you some insight into how he was thinking in his older age. He would say, one might as well damn for water tanks, the people's cathedrals and churches, because no holier temple has ever been consecrated by the heart of man. He's talking about nature. And so what this quote is actually a reference to is that he was in the Yosemite after it had become uh, established as a, as a park. And there was another person there with him, and I think she had said something like, oh, this is such a beautiful place to build a church. And to John Muir, you know, he's thinking, you want to build a church inside of a church. It doesn't make any sense. And so he's illustrating with that quote that, you know, how could you, how could you bring that modern Eastern, East Coast American religious view into the wilderness and think it's more holy, more better, than what's already here in the Yosemite. And it, it's just one of those most fascinating things to me about Muir is, is he's, he was a very deep human being. And we also have some other historical yes. figures. Um, Edward Abbey, he was park <laughs> ranger. Um, anarchist, apparently. Abbey um, is legendary <laughs> in the West. He um he was a well he I, I don't know how to describe him he he was like a John Muir in the sense that he had an absolute reverence for the wilderness I mean we're we're talking about a man who would frequently just wander off into the desert without even water or maps he was he was famous for just wandering off uh, he once got lost in the Grand Canyon for eleven days because his boat sank and he didn't have a map and he had no shoes. And he just eventually wandered himself out of the out of the area. Um, you know, he he was he worked in the park service at Arches National Park for quite a while. Um, he was a prolific writer. He's he's an alumni of the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Uh, he studied philosophy and and uh, literature there, and this would have been in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, he had a huge anti-government. Uh, view everything he did. Uh, to illustrate that, uh, the best story I can think of about Abby is his death. And when he died, he had specifically instructed his friends to take him out into the middle of the Arizona desert and bury him with strict disregard for all federal and state laws regarding burial. And so as such, he wanted to be buried in a sleeping bag in the middle of the desert. And they did that. They actually they, they buried him in a There are people who still roam the Sonoran Desert today trying to find his grave. It is marked. Um, but uh, it's no one has, has found it yet. And, and I think only one of the three people that knew where it was is still alive today. Um, he was very outspoken about that sort of thing. And his book, uh, uh, Desert Solitaire, is probably his most known book which is kind of almost like a, a journal of his experience working at Arches and Canyonlands National Park in the 1960s. 
But the Monkey Rich Gang, which is just one of his novels, is the inspiration for the the modern eco terrorist movement. You know, the the going out. You know, he he talks about in the book some of the stories that the, his characters get into are things he actually did in northern New Mexico with his friends, where they would go out and they would take big wrenches and rip bolts out of the um, the uh, oil wells so that they would break down and the oil company would have to come out and fix them. You know, and they would continually do this and pull up stakes every time there was land development. And so the company would have to spend thousands of dollars to come back out and resurvey the area. Um, he was very, very much uh, kind of an inspiration for what we think of today as people like uh, Greenpeace or I, I forget the guys that have the TV show that go after the Japanese whalers. I can't remember his name, but uh, that kind of mentality uh, is very much <laughs> Edward Abbey's life. And there's also John Wesley Powell, yes, who explored the Grand Canyon, uh, Civil War veteran, uh, Stephen Mather, father of the National Park Service and its first yes. director. So, mere, mere, <clears throat> mere kind of lit the fuse on that one, so to speak, and Mather kind of came along and... Well, Muir, what Muir did was he created the idea of taking land and setting it aside, not for the rich, not for the elite, not for the government, but for the people to enjoy. It, and he, there's a great documentary Ken Burns had, done, had um, put together called America's National Parks, America's Best Idea, I think. It was on PBS in the oh, late 2000s. Um, and, you know, he goes into a lot of these histories, and, and Muir's goal had just been to set these aside for the people. Uh, in Europe, they talked about how a lot of the national uh, treasures really were owned by the rich. The castles, the historic sites were owned by rich families in the 1800s. Um, and here in the United States, it wasn't going to be that way. This was, we were, it was going to be different. And Mather um, is actually important because he, he is the, the brainchild behind the actual park service itself uh, because the national parks had been growing and had been being administered for, I think, 50-some years by this point. Well, no, not quite that long, 20 to 30 years by this point. And you know, Mather comes along and says, we need an organization under the Department of the Interior that's responsible for the parks because at the time – most of them had no funding. There was no funding at all. Um, in fact, one of the, the most uh, awesome pieces of history to, to read is the earliest protectors of Yosemite National Park were the African-American Buffalo Soldiers, who after the Civil War had basically no job anymore. They were only left in the Army out of compassion at the time. And, you know, they were sent uh, west basically to, to guard the parks is, is an excuse just to get them, you know, just here, go do something. And so they ended up being the earliest protectors from poachers and, and uh, when the gold rush began prospecting and so on. Um, and so Mather, you know, comes along and he comes up with an entire hierarchy for how the service will work, what it means to be an employee, what the idea of a ranger itself um you know, he, so he's he's very much loved. He also helped 
to set aside even more land um, in the 1930s, 40s, and so on. Uh, he was very well-liked on Capitol Hill as well. He knew how to play the game in Washington, so he knew how to, to squeeze extra funding out. He knew how to um, you know, garner the favor he needed to get the job done. He was known as being a, a go-getter and, and, a, and an accomplisher of tasks when given it. So um, a very important part of the service's history. Now, Powell, he was a Civil War veteran. He explored the Grand Canyon. Um, how, how, besides exploring, um, I'm assuming if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have the park regarding the Grand Canyon as well. Well, um, no, I think uh, the Grand Canyon was established right around the turn of the century. Uh, John Wesley Powell kind of helped to bring that um, interest to the Arizona, Southern California desert area. Um, up until that point, the parks had been focused on places like the Yosemite and Yellowstone. They're the two oldest. And these are places that are very much mountainous, heavy forested, lots of water, people, you know, oh, trees and rolling hills. People wanted to go see these things, and there wasn't a huge push to go look at red rock and dust in the desert. Powell's story is, is amazing because he was, I believe, the first to uh, take a uh, uh, float trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, and he did so with only one arm. He lost an, an arm in the uh, in the Civil War. Um, I was trying to pull up his uh, uh, page here because I've I've forgotten a few things about him that we needed to know. Yeah. So yeah, he was. Uh, he also served as the second director for the U.S. Geological Survey, which is what put him um, into uh, this more um, explorer, conserver type role. He did die in 1902, about seven years before John Muir died. So I, I'm not sure if they knew each other, but their paths very well could could have crossed at some oh, point. Absolutely. You know, Muir started in California, but he would eventually go to Alaska and he would have his impact in 19 in the early 1900s would still be felt in the 1960s and seventies when Alaskans were resisting the department of the interiors um, wishes to make national parks in Alaska. There was a, there were right. I mean, there were, in the 1960s and 70s in Alaska, many of the town's eating establishments had signs that said park service employees will be shot on site. Um, there was a huge lashback against what they saw as a, um, a federal land grab. Uh, they were Most Alaskans at the time were much more interested in the oil exploration. Um, because they thought it would bring them the money they and, and wealth to the area. It turns out in the end that the parks, uh, you know, did get solidified, did get established, and it turns out they brought them ten times the amount of money that the oil industry ever would have. 
So you, you don't find too many people in Alaska anymore that are all that upset about it anymore. But, I mean, Muir's original expeditions in Alaska would set the stage for that to come 60 years ago. So, so Alaskans were initially opposed to the idea of national parks. Well, it wasn't then... necessarily that they were opposed to the parks. They just – Alaska, you know, was one of the la- – I believe it was the last to become a state. Either it was that or Hawaii. I'm a bad American. I should know the answer to that. <laughs> Don't but, uh, feel bad. Um... <laughs> There were some things you had to correct me on, too. So, um, I, I think it was Alaska is the last one to become a state. I believe it was 1951. And, um, you know, it was to them, it was just they saw this as not that they were trying to set aside land, but that the federal government was trying to grab land. And Alaska had a very frontier mentality of, of we don't want the government here. Uh, we don't want the Park Service here. They're just an arm of the government. You know, this was the 1960s as well. It was a very big conservative stronghold in the U.S. was Alaska. Um, and, you know, these issues go throughout the whole West. It's not just limited to Alaska. We've seen this recently a couple of, uh, one or two years ago, the Cliven Bundy guy out in Nevada. This it was the same mentality, excuse me, same mentality, the same kinds of things were happening in Alaska when the Park Service was trying to establish Gates of the Arctic and Kenai Fjords and um, and and so on, uh, Glacier Bay. And and, every, and you know every now and then you hear stories of stories of government suing suing ranchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who had open grazing rights since like the oh absolutely hundreds and. Royally screwing things up and saying, "Oh, you're. We're going to find you. We're we're going to make sure you're in trouble and everything else." Even though they were, they were actually fixing things that would have actually been good for the environment well, at the time. Too. To clarify some of that, that's a huge issue, especially here in New Mexico. Um, nine times out of ten, that's usually the Bureau of Land Management that gets into those fights. You very rarely ever see this happening at like the National Park Service or the Forestry Service. It's usually right. land management because their job is much more, you know, in, in looking at land entirely. Um, but there's all, I mean, we were on geologic field expedition in Alamogordo last year and uh, for fall field conference, you know, and a rancher had led us onto his land to look at some rocks. And I, I remember him telling, coming out with a gun, you know, with a revolver on his hip in stereotypical New Mexico fashion. And say, <laughs> you see an endangered species on this property, you will not utter one word about it to anyone, or I will come and find you. And he was quite serious. It's a problem. Anytime a, an endangered lizard or toad or whatever gets found, BLM swarms that area, and usually it ends with the rancher losing his land. And so they're very, um, you know uppity about it. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, okay, we don't say anything. All right. So never saw anything, but, you know. But do you think there's sometimes a little bit where um, people who want to preserve land go too far and endanger other people's livelihoods at the same time as well? Maybe more well, balance is needed? or The problem is, is that here in the West – um, I'm a transplant. I'm originally from the same area you're from, from, from central Missouri, from the Midwest. And these issues are not present there in the same way. 
Um, out here, the mentality has always been this way. It's This is a harsh place to live. Um, it's not for the, the timid. It's not the easiest place to make a living. A lot of people come out here and die. In the, in the 1800s, it was because they just didn't know how to survive. Today, it's because of drugs. But, <laughs> but in terms of your question, um, I think that when it comes to people conserving lands, I have yet to encounter anything that, in my personal opinion, is going too far. When it comes to the BLM wanting to exert control over land, I think that they do, in times, get greedy and want to soak up as much land as possible. On the same hand, though, the West is becoming more populated today than it ever had been in the past. And those cultures are really clashing now, where the people who are, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generation Arizona natives, uh, Utah natives, Nevada natives, understand why having uh, protected land is important and they live with that, are butting into the fact that now Las Vegas and Phoenix and Los Angeles are metropolises with millions of people living in them and the land is getting destroyed, uh, desertified because of that push for water, which is, you know, water, people still get murdered in New Mexico over water rights. Out, if you go outside of Socorro, out towards Magdalena, out on the plains of San Augustine, out in the Gila, you will still encounter one, two, three murders a year that are probably motivated over water by ranchers. You know, it's it's an actual thing that still happens. Um, and so that, that that pushback between those two cultures of progress, you know, building cities, taming the desert, um, and then the people who have lived here who want to ranch and want to farm is integral to understanding how the land management issue, how the BLM claiming land or taking land or giving land back even, which they do do. People often you know, we'll go off and say, well, the BLMs always take, sometimes they do give land back. They'll, they'll deregulate land that was protected to non-protected status, you know, upon further surveys and so on. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of when it comes to parks and monuments, no, I don't think that there is anything that has been um, detrimental to farmers. When it comes to BLM or reclamation, yeah, there absolutely have been. Okay, and that that's more of long lines of what I was. Yeah. I, I Sorry, wasn't referring to parks. Oh no, I wasn't referring to parks that were already there. More long lines. You were describing the guy with the gun saying, "Look, don't don't tell anybody this is yeah. there, because I'm going to I will lose my livelihood basically if that well, happens." There, there's some. I mean, usually. What happens is the BLM, in the case of an endangered species, the BLM will come in and make a survey, and they'll say, you know, it takes, who knows, six months, a year, I don't know. But whatever it ends up taking, they'll come back and say, well, we found the gray-spotted lizard, and it is in danger, but we found two of them. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give up your land because they might have just wandered over here from this plot of land that nobody owns, so we're just going to take that and we've relocated these two 30 miles over here. Um, there are times, though, when it pops up where there's a nest of rare falcons, we'll say, and it's like, oh, 
well, okay, you've got to give up this section of your land now. Um, it's not like Russia. They don't just come in and just take it. There is compensation for that um, that is given. But, um, you know, it depends. I mean, if a rancher loses half of his ranch land, it's going to be really hard to ranch. If he loses a tenth of his ranch land, well, it's just an annoyance, and usually they get over it. Or they carry it like a grudge until they're 90 and die. But, <laughs> you know... Uh, it it's it it's really case by case on how it works out here. And and the two clashing cultures, as you yeah. said, have have not made this easily resolvable at times. No, yeah, oh yeah, I you know it's like I was saying about you know you still have murder over water rights here. Uh, a, a great example, something I just recently learned: um, rain barrels collection of rainwater in Colorado is illegal. And I was trying to figure out why that doesn't make any sense because here in New Mexico, it's one of the primary ways that we get our water. It turns out the reason for that is because in the 1800s, Colorado sold its water rights to California. So the water that falls from the sky literally belongs to California if it falls within the confines of the state of Colorado. And that's why you can't have a rain barrel because it's not your water to collect. It's California's water. And I thought to myself, that's, crazy. <laughs> I had no idea that's what that was about. Wow. So, yeah. so some places up in Oregon, I think there's problems <laughs> doing that as well. Yeah, well, Cal Cal California steals water from Oregon quite frequently. Um, <laughs> you know, if you, if you go to Southern California, you have uh, Los Angeles, you have um, over 100 golf courses, and that is enough to suck up. Uh, um, it's not sustainable, but it sucks up a ton of water, and they have to get it from Northern California, from Nevada, from Arizona, from Oregon, even from Colorado. Um, it's, it's quite actually a big issue. There are, there are those people out there in academia that study things like water usage and hydrology and cities and how that interacts on a social level, and they, they have been saying for the last few decades that Los Angeles as a city is not sustainable and that it will collapse and then it will be half the size it is now because people will leave in droves because there won't be enough water to support it. And then they said, you know, then it'll be a nice place to live. But uh, it, it is a big central issue out here in the desert of, of sustainability when there's no water for, I mean, half the year, the Rio Grande River is just two miles that way out the front of my house door. Half of the year, it's dry. I can walk in the middle of the river and not get wet. <laughs> um, oh. That's how life is in the desert. When so, fills up, but. so 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 basically, um, the, those who have been arguing that oh, it's it's stupid legislation that's going to kill most of California's population because they're going to move away. No, it's it's unsustainability of water. Yeah, <laughs> in so large it's, cities, it's not an issue of the legislation is going to drive people from California. It's just that this it's not sustainable. I mean, it, Dubai in uh, in the United Arab Emirates is another example of this. Dubai is a jewel 
in the middle of a harsh a desert that's far more harsh than what we live in here in the southwest United States. And when the oil does eventually dry up, Dubai will become a ghost town. That Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, will just be nothing but a rusted monument because there won't be a reason for anyone to be there anymore. There won't be any more money flowing into the area for people to continue to maintain that lifestyle, and it will degrade. And the same thing will happen in Los Angeles eventually. Phoenix, too. Probably not Albuquerque. Albuquerque's quite a bit smaller and higher in the mountains and has more access to water. But if you, when you get into the Sonoran and the Mojave Deserts, where it's much more like a real desert, uh, than it is here where we're at. Um, those cities will eventually stop growing. Uh, so um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens 10 to 15 years from now. Um, cause like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Because um, somewhere saw a glimpse of headlines saying scientists are warning that California is – has about one year of water left, and I'm like, I'm wondering if they included the fact that they they own water rights to Colorado. <laughs> they don't because um, it's 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 such a convoluted mess of figuring out where the water in California comes from because they get they have water rights in so many places. I mean. The thing about California is that they're in an extreme drought and have been for about 10 years. And it should have gotten better, but El Nino didn't show up like we thought it would last year. And it will eventually show up, but the question is when? Another three years? This is the second year in a row that Reclamation is telling Southern California farmers that we're not, there's no water. You're not getting any because we're not allowing you to take any out of the reservoir. So any water they get is going to have to come from a source that they either mine themselves, so they well, they dig their own wells to get water out of the aquifer, which is drained very, very, very low, or they're going to have to truck it in to keep their farms going. And I think you'll see a lot of a lot of farming in Southern California, a lot of farmers this year, will just give up and they'll move because I don't think it's, it's not going to be profitable for them. And to be honest, it probably needs to be this way because you shouldn't be farming in the middle of the freaking Mojave desert <laughs> anyway. But uh, changing environment and everything like that. Um, right. And, and it once was a very good environment to uh, farm a lot of fruit and things like that. But, Unfortunately, times change, and not being able to adapt. Foresight. You know, you go back to the 1940s and 50s, and there was no regard for policy. It was just suck all the water up, make the farms, make the food. We're fighting World War II. We need the, you know, the fruits and vegetables. There was no um, responsibility or accountability to the use of the resource. And as it got into the 1980s, and we're, of course, no longer fighting in, in World War II anymore. It's been 30 years by that point, 35 years by that point. And, uh, you know, the scientists start doing modern science on the area and finding out, look, the aquifer is dangerously low, and it's not getting recharged. We're not getting snowfall like we used to. Um, you, you can tie this in, of course, to climate change. It, it's 
regardless of whether humans cause climate change or not, it is changing. And people are going to suffer the effects of that change in California, Southern California, is a prime example of where it will happen um, in terms of drought. So, so in addition to parks not getting funded, you have this happening out in California. Um, <coughs> I would argue um, politics in the in the West, in the American West, are more um, difficult, confusing, and corrupt than they are on the East Coast <laughs> because of all of these issues. So many hands and so many different pockets out here, especially when it comes to water or land, that it gets really hard to tell who's really out to help who. Oh, man. Yeah. That's... And it's not and... It's been like this since the 1800s, so, you know, it's, it's like normal, everyday uh, thing here for us. So uh, what what are you recommending for... for how? trying to convince people to actually care and not not destroy these monuments or or the first, pollute them. Right. Well, the first thing I would say is this, is to, to know, you know, to, to don't just take my word for it, but go out there and do the research on these issues. Um, but also know that these places, places like the Grand Canyon, places like the Southwest, these are loved places, and there are millions of people here that are already doing things to help. And so it's, this is not, I'm, I am not, uh, this is not a, an issue of, oh my God, we have to do something in the next 10 years or the entire Southwest is going to burn up. I don't think that's the case. Um, what people can do, uh, volunteer for your park service, first of all. It's great for you because being outside is great. It really reduces stress. Um, you know, get out there and, and interact with people who are coming into the parks. They need the help. Uh, volunteering is great because if you decide you want to try to pursue a career in the park service, the park service does prefer to hire people they've worked with before. So if you volunteered at several different places, you can put that on your resume and they're more, you're more apt to get hired than somebody who just walks in off the street and says, I need a job. Um, so it's great for you in that regard if you want to maybe start a career in the Department of the Interior or Park Service, Forest Service, what have you. Um, it's also good for your health, like I said. You know, it's good to be out in the parks. It's good to support. It's good to see the positive. Whenever I go into the parks, I very rarely see people fighting. In fact, I don't ever think I've even seen a fight. I don't encounter rude people. Everyone seems to be pretty happy to be there. Um, so it's a, it's a positive place to go, and that's what it should be. As far as... Um, what you can do to help with issues like water management and things like that is don't move here. <laughs> uh, or if you have to move here, don't bring all 70 of your relatives with you uh, because we're, we're running out of that, um, that ability to sustain a lot of people. And I realize I moved here five years ago, so I'm part of the problem, but I'm only one person. Hopefully that won't be too bad. Um, but the other thing is, is, is we talked a little bit earlier, the Park Service does need a bit more funding. I don't think that they need a, a, a ton of it. I think um, my hope is, is that after the next presidential election, we'll get a different administration. And I, I don't know that much about how politics works, to be honest. 
but I can say that hopefully the next administration, whoever they may be, will be easier to work with Congress. And maybe then somebody can get something done. Um, Stuart Udall, who was a secretary of the Department of the Interior in the 1960s, is a famous New Mexico politician. His uh, nephew, Tom Udall, is our current senator and has uh, he's you may know of him. He's been leading the fight for against Citizens United for several years. Um, he's also takes his um, relative Stewart's uh, stance on conserve on conservation very highly. So he often argues in Congress, lobbies Congress for um, bills pertaining to parks and and, and con conservation. So there are people out there who can do it. It's just a matter of helping to get. Um, legislation, good legislation, too, not just any old thing written, but good stuff passed. Um, getting involved, I used to ask people to get involved with the Sierra Club. I don't do that anymore because, like most modern political organizations, they've kind of become so entrenched in uh, far left liberal stuff that I don't agree with half of what they say these days. So I tend to shy away from asking if you, if you want to support something, uh, support the parks with your money by going and visiting the parks and, and going into the bookstore and buy, they have wonderful history and geology and science books in store. They're high quality. You know, that's the best. If you want to give your money, do it that way. You know, paying the entrance fee to get into a park. I don't know how much of it goes to these organizations, how much ends up in the parks, but I would, I would really, I would guess very little. Um, I was going to ask, is there, besides that, is there currently a way for people to directly donate to these parks to where they have more funding from private citizens and as opposed to relying on legislators who may or may not add poison pills to... Right. <laughs> so the, I believe the Western National Park Association has been able to avoid political corruption so far. I think you can still donate to them. The Park Foundation, which was started by um, – oh, who started the Park Foundation? They're good <laughs> to do. Uh, I can't remember who started the Park Foundation. But Steve, they are huh? – Steve, is that Mather or no? I, I think it was Mather, but it might have actually been the Rockefellers. Um, so I'm, I'm going to – it was – no, it was Roy Hampton Park. Uh, it's the Park Foundation. Founder and chairman of uh, Park Communications. He, okay, so he was uh, uh, he was a journalist in the in the 1940s. Anyway, the Park Foundation uh, still does a lot of good with their money, and they help. And then, of course, like I said, you know, visit the parks. Paying those fees is one of the best things you can do. The other thing is, when a new park is is brought up for um, proposal, comment on it. You know, a lot of times here in New Mexico, we get new areas every year. Uh, sometimes they're really small. You know, our senators always send out things all over the social media saying, you know, what are your comments on this? Um, so be active in that part of, of politics. Just make your comments known. Say, you know, I support such and such wilderness because I think that, and don't just do it because I'm telling you to, but look, is, the, is making this area in, let's say, your state, protected is it good for you if it is then support it if it's not then don't um, but that's another way you can do it 
Outside of that, um, they've made it really hard to publicly fund the, a lot of these agencies. Like with NASA, there used to be calls, can, can the public donate to NASA? It's not that easy to do. It's easier for the Park Service, not that easy for some things like NASA or the USGS. Um, but the other thing is, I would say, another way you can help with funding issues is when you go to parks, don't do stupid things, you know? Don't don't give the Park Service a reason to have to spend money because of your ignorance or because of your stupidity. So things like vandalism, um, that costs money. Uh, cleaning the saguaros, which we talked about early on in this podcast today, uh, I believe costs like 50000 a cactus, and I, there were several dozen that had to be cleaned. Uh, cleaning the rocks... Altogether, I think was twenty or thirty thousand dollars, and that's you know that takes money right out of the coffers. And and to people who say, well, that doesn't sound like a lot for the Park Service right now, it is. And the reason is you have to remember the Park Service is a part of the BLM, the uh, Forestry Service, the U.S. Geological Survey, which are all under the Department of the Interior. So unlike NASA, which gets funded every year for you know twenty billion, let's say. The Department of the Interior gets funded for $20 billion, but it has four or five departments that get all that funding under it, whereas NASA, there's no one, there's no, there's no, um, there's nothing under NASA to suck up that parts of that funding. So um, it ends up being, you know, very little in the end that helps out for that. Those are some of the ways I would suggest. Okay. Um and why, why sorry turn on the light well, <laughs> um, do you think it would be a good idea to make it even easier for individuals to directly donate i don't know i've i think here, the thing is is that in a way you can already kind of do that and i can't believe i forgot about this Every park, every monument, when you go there and visit, has a glass box that you can donate money to, and that money goes directly into the park service, and there is an actual accountability for that money. So there are public reports released every quarter where you can go and see how much was collected from the box, what it was spent on. It's usually spent on trail maintenance. It's usually spent on uh, visitor center maintenance uh, or facilities maintenance, so you know that it's not going into someone's pocket. When it does go into someone's pocket, it's usually pay for new rangers, for new law enforcement, for new visitor center guides, and you know that I don't care. If it's good now, if it's going in to make the salary of the Department of the Interior secretary bigger, then I would, but it doesn't. Uh, at least it hasn't yet. Um, so that is there. So I guess in that way they can they can go and do that in person. I don't know if they accept online donations or not. I don't think they do at the current time. And I don't know if that would make a huge amount of difference because, like I said, um, th the biggest problem really is the amount of usage and you know the people not using wisely. When people go camping and they carelessly leave a fire going and then all of a sudden you have a 3,000, 4,000 acre fire in, in Yosemite, I mean, that's millions of dollars that it's going to, tens of millions probably, that it's going to blossom into. So a lot of what can save the Park Service money 
is, you know, people being smart when they use the parks. Don't take things out of the park when you come in. There's a, we have a mantra. When you go to the parks, you, when you enter the parks, you take only, um, or no, I'm sorry. When you leave the parks, you take only photographs and you leave only footprints. You know, it's kind of a cute little thing we teach to, to the children and the visitor centers and things when they come in. Um, don't, but don't take out rocks and sticks and pine cones because if everybody did it, eventually there wouldn't be anything left. And um, that kind of damage that that causes is just sometimes it's not even fixable, no matter how much money you have. Um, for the border, if you live in the border, if you live in the border parks, I believe there are two border parks in the U.S., uh, Big Bend in Texas and Oregon Pipe in Arizona. You know, just report illegal activity. If you see people crossing the border for whatever reason and it looks suspicious, don't engage them, but report that to law enforcement so that can be taken care of because, you know, only in the last year has all of the trails in Oregon Pipe been opened up again. Uh, there was a, Arizona did a lot of combating there at the park to stop the border crossings and to stop the killings of rangers in the area. And it has worked and it's getting better, but having a park shut down, you know, that decreases the economy in the whole area because you don't have people coming in. The same thing with Petroglyph. I think I was just looking, I think all the trails are back open now, but it was shut down for a couple of years because of all the vandalism and, you know, Fixing vandalism aside, costing money, when a park's not open, it's not making any money for itself, and it's not making any money for the local economy. No one's coming to the restaurants, the hotels. You know, there's no reason to because you can't get into the park. So really taking a stance against illegal activity um, is a way to help, you know, save money in the park system. Being responsible when using the parks is a way to help save money. Encouraging people to go and responsibly use the parks and the monuments is also a way because, you know, the more people we get in, now, like I said, the double-edged sword, the more damage we are opening ourselves up to, but the more economy raising money we're opening ourselves up to. Should there be an off-season for, for parks every now and then, have kind of a rotating kind of schedule to where there's some time to recuperate or what? Well, they, they kind of do that. Um, most parks usually close in the winters for several months between the official park season. So if you get a job as a park ranger, for example, uh, it usually starts on March 1st and ends on October 1st. And then after that, you don't work anymore. Uh, there are exceptions. A lot of the parks here in Arizona and New Mexico are open year-round because we don't have horrible winters like you do back home um, or up north. But, um, you know, you do have that to some degree. And then there are times when parts of parks are shut down. Like, for example, uh, I think Window Rock and, and Arches is shut down this year for trail maintenance and just general surveys and things. So you can't, you won't be able to do – there's a couple dozen trails you won't be able to use this year. And that will help, I think, a little bit, but I, I'm not sure that actually shutting them down will do that much from time to time to help out. Um, I've heard an argument made on this, too, that having more parks, there are 58 currently in the United States, having more would even out the distribution of what people are going to and using. 
there is this is kind of hard for me because um, emotionally it's like hell yeah I'd sign me up for more parks um, more beautiful land everywhere I'll, I'll take it but on a responsible level I have to say now we can't just go picking any random grove of trees and saying that's a park and that's a park and that's a park and that's a park we have to be responsible about it it is true though people do like to point out that if you go into a certain area of the United States there basically aren't any parks there and there are probably places that are beautiful and should be preserved and that area of course is the south uh, east in the United States. There are a lot of historic sites and monuments, but nothing really grand. I mean, people don't go to Alabama and think, oh, I'm going to see Alabama's version of the Grand Canyon. I don't know if there even is a landmark that would be that recognizable in a place like Alabama or Georgia. But those areas could benefit, and it would be nice to see a couple of new parks pop up in that area of the country, because right now, outside of Florida, um, yeah, there's not really a much of a park presence there outside of, like I said, the historic sites and the battlefields and so on. And and there'd have to be considerations for property owner rights and exactly. avoiding the abuse of eminent domain, which has happened throughout the country from time to time on state government's parts. Exactly. Um, so that, there's that to consider. You know, oh, there, there's also the issue of in in the South, the poverty, um, the racial tensions. It's not a place that a lot of people want to go. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be an ass by saying that, but I, I very rarely hear people say, I'm going to go to Alabama on vacation. Because why? Um, it's just not the nicest place to go. Um, in all honesty, um, there are people who will tell you stay away from certain parts of Oklahoma. It's like being right, in another right, country. Right. Uh, stay away from the non-metropolitan parts of Arkansas. It exactly. gets a little bit scary. Um, it's just... So it's 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 also that kind of stuff to take into consideration, too. It's Yeah, you, and the, you know, the, the economies are not great in that area. Um, the health in that area is not the greatest. There's a lot of obesity... And, and so on. And so it's it's just, um, I think honestly think that area could benefit from having two or three national parks, you know, big tracts of place. And it would help the economies. It would help the people. I think it would be great. I don't know that I can't find anything here in a quick Google search of anything current proposed in the area. I found some little monument, proposed monuments. The difference between a park and a monument, by the way, is is simply in designation. The national monuments are usually smaller tracts of land, although they don't have to be, than the parks. Um, and they're not quite as, as advertised as parks. They're a little bit, usually monuments are, are attached to what are called national wildernesses. Um, and a wilderness is just a tract of land that has no development. There is no visitor center. There are no hiking trails. If you go there, you make your own trail. <laughs> you know, Usually you pay an $8 permit, to go camping in the backcountry for seven days, and that's it. And if you get lost, well, you're probably going to die because there's no one here to help you. Um, there, are a couple, oh. but there are a couple of areas like that that have been proposed, but nothing big. Um, and I think, you know, people, that's another thing I, I want to touch on if we've got time. Um, 
people think of the Park Service and they think to themselves, well, the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, uh, Yellowstone, you've got uh, Saguaro, you've got Olympic. They don't realize that the Park Service is responsible for four, five, six hundred of the nation's historical landmarks. The Capitol, the National Mall, is part of the Park Service. That's run by the park. We know that because uh, in 2013 when we had the partial government shutdown and they had all the signs up, you couldn't go visit Lincoln Memorial and people were jumping signs and there were all these poor park rangers that were like, I have to stand here and tell you this, but, you know, don't really agree with it, but I've got no choice. It's my job. Um, so, you know, historic battlefields, historic rivers, national um, landmarks in, in uh, um, sorry, what is this? It's Liberty? Is that up there north of Kansas City? No, Independence. That's the city I'm thinking of. Uh, Independence has the Harry S. Truman home, which is a National Historic Site, which is beautiful. I've been there. It's a great little home to visit. The library, Truman Library is there. Uh, you know, you've got several. Lone Jack outside of um, Lee Summit has a national battlefield there. So, I, you know, that is another side of the Park Service that people tend to forget about, is that we set aside not only beautiful land, but pieces of American history. Um and they're important to us because, um, you know, that's our history. That's where we came from. So visit those sites as well if you can. And I've been to the the uh, site in question, Lone Jack. So yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I think I think we're pretty much both talked out on this subject at at the moment. So. Um, Kind of skipped last, well, this past Friday. We were recording on a Saturday because yeah. my birthday came up, and I, you know, I was deadly sick all week. So, so, um, so this one will be updated to the feed this Friday, coming Friday. So, um, thank you for joining us again, Curtis. I'm going to try to get the other. Uh, get Stephen Kelly back on here. It's been a long time since he's been on here. For the for the video part of this, one last little thing I wanted to do here. Um, oh, if you go to your national parks, you can get one of these. I believe they're ten dollars, nine ninety nine. I it, I got mine five years ago, so the price may have gone up. But what these are, this is the passport to the parks, and inside is all kinds of information. I don't know how easy it is to see on every park, every monument, everything in the system. And there are places all through it where you can get your stamps. When you visit a park, each ranger desk has a stamp that has the park on it. And so it's like a, like a passport for visiting other countries for the parks. This is a great way to support the park service and to kind of record your memories of traveling there. So I highly recommend the service. Actually, um, all the profits from these go back into the park service. So, uh, it's a good investment. It's not expensive, and it'll bring you a lot of fun and joy. So, for those who can see it, that's what it looks like. If you're listening to this on the the audio version, you just go to the any ranger, any visitor center, any national park monument, and they'll have them, and you can you can ask for one. Oh, and they're high quality too. They're they're really good. Mine's held up very well, having been in hiking backpacks and dropped over cliffs and. 
<laughs> at least you haven't fallen off a cliff over it. No, yeah, I haven't fallen yet. <laughs> Hopefully I won't. Well, entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself. Um, thanks for um, listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Peace.